One in three. That's how many households in New York City are severely rent burdened, meaning they pay over half of their monthly income on rent, electricity, and heat. That's nearly 600,000 households, a staggering number. The high cost of housing in New York City is certainly not a new issue, but as housing production in New York has lagged the need and the city's competitors, and the gap between incomes and housing costs have remained too high for some and increased for others, the energy to address these issues has been building. Increasingly, policymakers and many stakeholders along the political spectrum are agreeing that one key to increase affordability is to build more housing of all different types all around the city. I'm Andrew Ryan, President of the Citizens Budget Commission. Thanks for joining us for this episode of What's the Data Point? This week, we're sharing a conversation from one of our live events. I recently sat down with New York City Chief Housing Officer Jessica Katz to talk about how the Adams administration plans to tackle New York's housing needs and manage its housing agenda to ensure success. Jessica joined the administration in January, developing the city's Housing Our Neighbors plan and overseeing city agencies that build, preserve, and manage housing, including the Department of Housing Preservation and Development, the Housing Development Corporation, New York City Housing Authority, and the Mayor's Office to protect tenants. As we spoke at a recent CBC trustee breakfast, our conversation ranged from zoning and the public and environmental review processes to rehabilitating New York City's public housing to ensuring city agencies are staffed and managed well to get stuff done. CBC trustee Mark Willis, who is senior fellow at NYU's Furman Center, introduced Jessica and cited a few sobering numbers of his own. A few quick facts. 600,000 households, a third of uh, the renters, are severely rent burdened, which means they pay over 50% of their income uh, towards, uh, towards housing. We rank 18th of the 25 largest U.S. cities in housing production per capita. We're even behind San Francisco. And NYCHA, uh, our main stock of deeply affordable housing, uh, needs $40 billion uh, to bring its facilities up to a good state of repair. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did, and be sure to continue to listen to What's the Data Point, co-sponsored by our colleague Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Take care, New York. So Housing Our Neighbors, it's a blueprint, it's 90-some-odd pages. I read it again this weekend. It is comprehensive. It is worth a read to understand the vision, the complexity of what you um, are going to undertake in this administration. So why don't we start there? Um, it's a little different than prior plans. One of the differences is you include NYCHA. Is it the first chapter? It's the first um, chapter. You include chapter NYCHA, one. one of the recommendations in our 2018 report, um, or 2019, stabilizing the foundation. I'm not sure, I don't think we're the only ones who originated this idea, but this administration encompassing that in the plan does, is explicitly not carving it out for some other problem and some other things. So thank you for that, including um, a focus on overall production, as you say on page 56, an undersupply of housing drives up prices for everyone. That is a, a, um, a realization that is gaining momentum, and we can come back to talk to that, because that is key to, under, to solving this um, crisis, homelessness as part of the plan. But you know, there was one of the things that got the most attention when you release, there was, unlike the past, you haven't focused primarily on a number of affordable units created, preserved. Everyone wanted that number. So how would you describe the difference if you're saying, we're not focused purely on that number, 200,000, 300,000, that number. Instead, we are focused on, so why don't you help us understand where you're going? Sure. So when 
you know, like you, I've been in and out of government a couple of times, and I find that the breaks, especially when you get to go to a great place like CHPC or Citizens Budget Commission, where you really just get to step back and think for a minute, and so you're not building the plane while you're flying it. So I got a chance, kind of in between tours of duty and government, to think through what the next housing plan needed to look like, um, and was reflecting upon the fact that, despite the fact that my job at HPD for most of my time there was creating housing for homeless people, um, in the more than a decade that I worked there, every single day I was asked, did you close the deal, did you close the deal, did you close the deal? So that was a remarkable engine. It was a remarkable factory that gets built at HPD to make sure that everybody is on the same page and knows what success looks like and what to measure and how to produce. Um, and everybody up and down the org chart kind of really focuses on that one number. Um, and that process and that is remarkable. Um, but not once the entire time I worked there did anyone ask me, did you house anybody today? So what I wanted to do with the new housing plan is not to shift the focus away from production, but to shift the moment that we take a curtain call away from when everyone sits down at the table and closes the deal. So you know, with all due respect to all the people in here, myself included, who come to the table at the deal closing, there's always this moment at the closing table um, that you'll, I think you'll all recognize where like the contractors like look, you know, everyone's like celebrating, and the contractors are looking a little queasy, like, oh, I'm sorry, you guys are all having a party like my job has just begun right now. Um, so what I wanted to do is kind of bottle the energy of that machine that HPD has built that's so effective to close deals um, and just apply that towards what would it take to do that for, for housing people and have that be the day that we take our curtain call. So that was kind of the main paradigm shift that we wanted to look at. And also one of the unintended consequences, of course, of counting units created or preserved is that we all just kind of said, well, we can't count NYCHA towards that goal because NYCHA has been affordable. It'll always be there. It's always been there. Um, and you know, we're about a generation too late in assuming that NYCHA is just a part of the infrastructure that's always going to be there. Uh, and there's a real urgency towards making sure that focusing on NYCHA as the most critical, most affordable piece of housing infrastructure that we have takes center stage. Um, and focusing on the unit count and like changing the way we count it would really have distracted from that. So we, th those are the, really the two pillars that led me in that direction that made me want to think we need a new roadmap for this next, for this moment. And the roadmap is complicated. I didn't count all the things. Um, and you didn't do me the favor by numbering them, 1A, 2A, 3B, you know, whatever. But it's a long list of, of diverse set of initiatives. And we at CBC, and I'm sure you agree that to get stuff done, to use a phrase I've heard occasionally, to get stuff done, you need a performance management system. You need a process, an accountability process that cascades down, and the right portfolio of indicators. If you, as you said, if you count, if you only look at units, you're probably not doing some other stuff. And if you never fill the units, the world isn't changing, but you're, you're feeling good. Um, you need that portfolio. What are your inputs? What are your outputs? What's the efficiency? There's a little division that can be, are you doing it efficiently? Is it quality? And ultimately, what are the outcomes that you're changing? So what is your set of measures? If it's not this unit count, what are the set of measures we should be looking at and you should be looking at to judge if you're successful making progress? 
So we are continuing to count units, obviously, but some of the new metrics that were included in the mayor's management report, which is the main citywide document that tracks all of our performance measures, includes for the very first time how long it takes for someone to move into a unit. So from the day that the TCO hits and you'd be able to move into that apartment to the day that someone has a lease and is sleeping in that bedroom. Um, we've never counted that before. So now that we have a baseline, now we can create an operational process to improve upon that number and create a target to move forward so that's but that's that's the most important headline I think and what the new MMR is going to look like we're also tracking for the first time the units that we have preserved and renovated under the rad pact program so we had a record number this year it was almost 6,000 units so those are units that forever you know for we've, we've got another generation out of those units they're in management that's going to work they are upgraded and so we're making sure that we're tracking what's going on at NYCHA as well as part of the MMR is another important piece and we won't go too far down the rabbit hole, but let's, on the measures before the process, um, coming from my public health background, epidemiologists are always thinking about outcomes, and then you're doing all this stuff, and you're not paying attention to this stuff. So you've talked about some of the stuff. Should there be an, an outcome indicator like, um, you know, a rent burden prevalence, as, as Mark said, we have 600,000, I just want to come back to this, 600,000 families severely rent burdened, over 50% of their income. That's a stunning. And you, you, you use the rent burden 30%, you know, um, and it's 50% or families in, in the report. Should that be one of the eyes on the prize indicators that you're looking at over a longer term? It's not going to change tomorrow, but over a longer term, are you going to include that? So the rent burden prevalence is incredibly important, and it's an indicator of the health of the overall housing system. Mm -hmm. um, so it reflects not just how much affordable housing we build, but also the health of the, of the market and the health of the housing supply. So making sure that we, and focusing on just, that's one of those things that gets left to the side if you just focus on the units that we create or preserve. Right, so like what's going on in the rest of the market? Because no matter how big we go, it's still going to be a pretty small sliver. It's an incredibly important sliver. Um, and again, if you, if NYCHA is our most important um, piece of affordable housing infrastructure, nobody in NYCHA is rent burdened, um, but they're not living in conditions that are sustainable either so really looking at housing quality and rent burden and sort of the larger picture of what's going on in the housing market overall are all going to be really critical and do you set up a and this is one of the things we've urged the administration generally this is not just in your area some kind of management process part of in talking about the homeless section you say everyone's you know you identify all the different agencies that are involved you know, and it's always been siloed. This is a, we've, many of us been in and out of government or work with government. We know the silos are a challenge. Um, and you say everyone's going to be held accountable. How, what's the administration's approach going to be to holding everyone accountable for their part of, of your piece, which is pretty diverse? So I think we have, a we have an incredibly collaborative city hall. Um, and so everybody has been working together to figure out how to work with the agencies together. But certainly, it's, certainly that's a challenge, as you know, because the silos are strong. Yes. Um, I had on my resume one time, silo spanner. I thought it was a good way to get a job. Um, um, I got a job that wasn't that, whatever. But hey, um, do you worry at all? I mean, as you were talking about the overall outcome indicator, remember, that's the housing market. And one of the great things, and I, I truly mean that, the great things about the plan is it, it doesn't like carve off stuff. On the flip side, there's a risk of not prioritizing, and it's spreading it so thin, so you can't do everything. Do you worry about that on any, any given day, the walk, chew, gum, you know, skip to my loo, all those things that have to happen? 
Um, I think we made a pretty strong statement in the housing plan of what our top priorities are. And I also think that it's been a real pleasure to work with some of those agencies that don't have the word housing in their title to bring to bear towards the housing plan. There's an incredible amount of energy. You should do a breakfast with Commissioner Tish from Department of Sanitation. We will. You know, we're not a, you know, Department of Sanitation doesn't think of itself as a housing agency, but the tenants at NYCHA sure as hell think that the Department of Sanitation have a lot to do with their daily quality of life. So it's been really seeing the cultures of the different agencies and what they can all bring to bear, I think is just creating a bigger, army for us towards the housing quality and the housing stock that we need. So let's shift to boosting production, which, you know, underpins a, a lot of what you're talking about. Um, the administration has some broad plans, zoning we'll plans and other administrative plans. We'll come back to that. But there also, it seems to be a moment of momentum building. I'm sorry. I'm looking at Dan because he's smiling too. Um, there's a moment, you know, um, Senator Brisport saying he read a Furman Center report. That was that was good advertising there, Mark. Product placement saying, you know, he was convinced that you know we need overall production. Um, Councilmember Caban, there seems to be a moment. Do you think there is momentum building? Do you think that'll change and evolve? And I don't want to say get rid of, but evolve member deference. And you can also maybe put in the context right now, which is Innovation Queens, which is you know sitting here on the precipice of potentially 1,100 affordable units. And, and twice that overall. Do you think we're in that moment and how can you use that? We're feeling a lot of momentum and I think that's momentum within City Hall that we're exercising our plans and moving them forward and also just in the wider world of what the conventional wisdom is about what housing is. I think there was a, you know, a debate that I know whose side I'm on about whether or not supply and demand is the thing that drives the housing market. Um, and I think that that question increasingly is being settled. And I think it's across the political spectrum that people are realizing why housing supply is really important. And we're seeing that in, the, you know, Dan and I are having a lot of fun with the ground game of moving these individual projects forward. But I think part of the momentum of that is how hard we're working to do that. And part of the momentum of that is just a change in the conventional wisdom of how desperately we need this housing and a kind of a, almost a depoliticizing of that. Like everyone's starting to realize that that's that's the air we breathe, how critical that is. So I do, I, we are feeling the momentum and it's nice to see a consensus starting to emerge. Do you venture to guess what happens with Innovation Queens? Can I uh, put you on the spot on that? I feel very optimistic about Innovation Queens. We're on a roll. Excellent. And it's interesting because, you know, as we started our land use report, you know, we consulted many experts and, you know, around the field and what the council speaker does, like that role and how she, in this case, exercises, in many cases, exercises uh, that power. Do you feel like the council at large is, is wrestling and evolving their perspective on how to both respect members' um, um, primacy in representing their constituents as well as thinking about the citywide? Do you think that's changing and the borough presidents are there? So, you know, this is why housing policy is so fun and also so challenging, right? Because it's an incredibly hyper-local topic and it also has profound citywide and regional impacts. So finding that right balance between what the individual neighborhood needs and what the city needs today and what the city needs a generation from now 
is the secret sauce of putting any one of these deals together. Um, the balance tips from time to time in terms of which of those topics is the most important and how to find that right balance. Um, certainly having a brand new council come in has a huge impact on, has a huge impact on that process. Um, so, you know, I think, again, we feel like we're feeling pretty optimistic. We're working closely with the council member and the speaker to figure out what the right balance is on that project in particular. Um, and we've been, we've, we've seen some success recently, so. Uh, and part of, I mean, you get to that 1,100 units with more, you know, city uh, participation than originally conceived of. So good luck with that. Um, but you're also, you, go ahead. Did you want to say more about it? <laughs> no. I hear Mark chuckling. I hear you chuckling. I'm, I, I got to be in on the joke. Mark though. and I are having a moment, but we'll have it on the side. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's good. That's why we bring people together. Um, so there are the spot rezonings. Talked with Dan about, like, let's have these generalized in neighborhoods. And then there are the citywide issues. And you're attacking some of those, which is good. When we did our land use report, um, or our boosting housing report, the city lacks significant as of right capacity to develop right now. That's part of the problem here. Even when you want to do stuff, you can't. Um, let's break that down a little. There's a proposed citywide or will be a proposed citywide text amendment for housing opportunity. And I'm not sure if I'm getting the name right, I think. Um, with a affordable housing density bonus, increasing limits on studios, et cetera. How important is that? What impact is that? And why do we have to wait till 2024? <laughs> um, you know, the, the zoning for housing opportunity is going to be the centerpiece of the citywide text amendment that's going to get us the some nips and tucks and some big changes that are going to affect housing production citywide, both specifically affordable housing production and affordable housing production in general. And it's also going to address some of the regulatory reforms we need just to make it just a little easier to develop housing in the city, right? Another thing that we don't talk about much in the housing plan because we talk mostly about the housing kind of in capital I industry um, is what it feels like for a homeowner who wants to put an addition on their home or replace their roof and what that process looks like. So wanting to make sure that both in our zoning code and our building code and our process changes that not only do we make it easier to build a skyscraper um, for a reasonable amount of money, but and also that we create kind of a, a more um, you know, a, a streetscape that everyone wants and can be proud of, but also what it feels like for an individual homeowner who wants to do some minor thing and then finds themselves kind of bogged down in the bureaucracy. So we need to make a bunch of tweaks to those, and I think when you add them all up together, that will have a really profound impact citywide just to make it a little bit easier to move things forward. And the timing, why we wait? You know, listen, this is always the challenge in any administration. You come and you have to hit the ground running. This administration, there's no question that the mayor runs. And there's no question that there's a lot of plans, But because this is your shot. That's why you take this, these jobs. Whoever's been here, you got your shot. Are you worried about waiting so long? I'm not worried about waiting so long. I think any pro process like this needs a really robust public review process. Um, and we also need to make sure that we get it right. The zoning code is incredibly complicated. So we are trying draft? to make it less complicated. Do you put out a draft for comments at some point in time? Do you have an estimate of that? I mean, I'm asking yes, the wrong person. Yes, we'll put out a draft for comments. Well, we'll come to that because I, I happen to read the papers this morning. Um, so, um, but so Redney did their estimate. Um, it seems right. We didn't. We didn't 
kick the tires too much, but literally 560,000 units by 2030, given what we've done in the last 10 years, we're talking about 25 to 30,000 more units a year. Hmm. What kind of dent does, for example, the Texmen put into it? Do you think about it that way? Of those 25 to 30 that you actually need to do to get to where we need to do, and it's a reasonable number, what kind of dent does the Texmen, what are the big hits there? So first, let me give a shout out to Sean on the CBC team, on your team, who's okay, done great. such amazing work on this topic. He has the <laughs> Everything you need to know about me is that I'm jealous of Sean's charts. Sean has made two charts that are remarkable. <laughs> One is about the gap between job creation in New York City and housing production in New York City, and the way that over the last couple years, that, that, that those lines have never been close enough together, but they've split drastically over the past decade or so. Um, and that is just a really amazing image that shows us the mountain that we have to climb in terms of housing production. And the other is around, as you mentioned in your intro, housing production vis-a-vis -vis other cities. Mm -hmm. So we're like down at the bottom on the CBC chart we're like Detroit Philadelphia Indianapolis cities that are lovely places but they're not ones that we tend to compare ourselves to here in New York City so that gives you a sense of how where we we've been operating as if we are a city like a Philadelphia that has in fact a massive vacancy problem um, and we've been doing housing production at that scale so we really need to step it up in order to do that and I'm sorry to press back but so does the text amendment is it a big chunk of that or is that just one sliver uh, that will start to narrow that gap, as you say. There are no silver bullets left in housing, but it is a big chunk. Okay. We need a tax abatement. That's a big chunk. Um, and we need to start speeding up the process in general. And then we have this amazing ground game going of doing, pro you know, deal by deal, project by project, of making sure that those projects actually get closed. So we'll get to Albany in a second. Not, you know, figuratively, not literally. The buses aren't outside. Um, um, so read the story in Politico. Bring, bring the bus outside. We all got to go. We all got to go. Uh, um, well, we brought Albany to us. Thanks for Dan for coming. Um, but um, we read the story in Politico about exempting developments fewer than 200 units from environmental review. Obviously, this is a, uh, as the story says, this is a, a, a consideration of policy. Can you say a little more about that approach? I mean, I love that in New York City we get to make news with our environmental review process. That's really exciting to me. Um, and it's, as we heard from many people in this room, how important it is that we just try to peel back the layers of the onion of every step that it takes to move forward one of these projects, even when everyone agrees that it's a project that we want to do and is really valuable, much less the ones that are controversial. So if every time you want to build anything, we have to spend a year or two years or three years and publish a thousand page book about why we need it, we're never going to get there. And so the BLAST process has been really critical to making sure that the projects that we want to get done have a smoother pathway. And um, is that, do we see the BLAST recommendations in the next month or two? I can't remember yes. when, when we think we see yeah. those things. Soon. Um, so um, Albany. And thank you again. Your report has been really helpful in informing our thought process well, around th class. Thanks a lot. I will say one of the best parts about Sean's charts analysis, no offense to the charts, is better than the charts. I don't want to relegate him. But we were getting a presentation from someone else who had lifted one of Sean's charts and it comes up and, and Sean texted me. me. I lift them all the time. It said, you know, that's my chart. <laughs> um, he said ours. He was actually very <laughs> humble about it, but it was, it was kind of funny. Um, but your attribution was great. I appreciate always, always, always the credit. We, we in our research world always, you know, steal but attribute, and we're good. Um, Albany controls a lot of our lives in the in the city. What are the big chunks? What are the big hits? 
top of your agenda that will make the most difference in Albany. We're coming into session. We have a successor to 421A that might be on the table. Obviously, property tax reform. You've worked on basement apartments and ADUs forever. What is top of your agenda and what will be the most impact? Speaking of, of converging those lines and increasing production, what are the biggest priorities? So I had a great warm-up year in Albany last session and got past the Preservation Trust and the Hotel Conversions Bill. So we're really proud of our, um, of our session last year. But then there was a lot that was left on the table. So I think we're teed up to have a big housing season in Albany next year. Um, we're getting ready to make that happen. So not only do we need a new new construction tax abatement, but we also need one for preservation because now we're in a position where because of the economic environment, we're starting to worry about housing quality in a way that we haven't had to in a certain amount of time. So we really need a strong J51 renewed program as well in order to preserve as much housing as we can and make sure that we preserve that quality. Um, ADUs and basements are really are, are another thing that, as you know, is close to my heart um, and is something that the mayor cares about deeply. And we really just want to create a pathway so that a homeowner who wants to have their home health aid live in their basement or their kid come home from college and have an apartment over the garage or a little extra income for a homeowner who's struggling, we really just want to create that flexibility for those homeowners. Um, it's not, it's, it's a, it's a, I think a relatively modest request that homeowners should be able to use their home in that way that's just a little bit more flexible, um, that meets their needs of what's going on in their family structure at that time. Um, and we've got some work to do in Albany to make sure that that message gets out there. And for those of you who didn't watch the gubernatorial debate last night, the governor did talk about, I don't know who the next governor is going to be, but the sitting governor running for re-election has talked about um, transit-oriented development, among the other things, and, and boosting production in the suburbs, which we know is you know, important as well. So we all look forward to a session where this is um, um, addressed. And plenty of people have questions, but I want to, because our shared history we spent every Tuesday night two to three hours when Vicki Bean, I guess she asked me, I assume the same, put together the um, task force to help break the logjam about public housing in, in Chelsea. And it was a phenomenal experience, torturous, wonderful, with people screaming, I mean, the tenants don't trust NYCHA. But that's why you on the outside and, and us, Sean, on the outside were helpful in this, in this process. So congratulations on getting the NYCHA Trust passed. So the NYCHA Trust, um, for those of you who don't know, I, I wrote this down. You tell me if I'm right. Um, okay, Sean edited it. Um, public Benefit Corporation, empowered to lease NYCHA properties. Sean, come up here and get in the seat, <laughs> Thank you, thank you. Um, receive enhanced federal vouchers, which give enough money to you know, maintain the properties, but also enough resources and the legal ability to capitalize some of that money so you can rehab um, the um, um, the buildings, which so now there's the option of RAD, which works with a private or nonprofit developer to do that work with the trust, and or stay in you know section um, section nine and see what happens. Um, tell us about the progress. You've released the draft uh, of, of the regs about tenant selection. Tell us a little where we are. Sure. So the process that we went through at Fulton Chelsea together was the, the most remarkable example, both of the power of civic associations like CVC and others that participated, and simultaneously the magic that happens when you actually put tenants in the driver's seat and ask them what they want to do with their building. So, and it was also for me the most rapid, um, the most rapid conversion of a crazy idea that you have at a think tank 
to actually executing it on the ground. So it's a something that I'm very proud of. And the arc of here's a PDF report that we put on our website that kind of converts into actual reality was by far the fastest and most important thing that so far that I'm so proud of. Um, you know, so we have an incredible pipeline of rad deals in New York City, which is a conversion process where you go from Section 9 funding to Section 8 funding, have an influx of capital and a private manager. And that process has been chugging along and it's gaining some steam and it's working well for tenants. But not everybody trusts it and not everybody wants it. And it didn't seem fair that we would have this tool that tell NYCHA tenants it's great, have NYCHA who there's no reason, there's many reasons for tenants to mistrust NYCHA and they have that, that mistrust is very well earned and say, here's an option, but it's your only option. So we wanted to create some choices for tenants because RAD is not the only way in order to renovate one of those buildings. So the Preservation Trust is a public option that would maintain all of the rights and responsibilities of a tenant's lease and also it, that's in public housing but have an influx of all the resources that you need to renovate those properties and for specifically for tenants who would prefer to have NYCHA continue to be their property manager and continue to have a public option versus the public-private partnerships that are represented by RAD. So, but instead, the, but the key is instead of having, right now there's 100 or so development teams, some of you are in this room today, um, who are on the RAD pre-qualified list. And then there's the trust. So why in the world would we go through the exercise of having staff at NYCHA say, okay, this developer gets this one, this one goes through the trust, we think this developer will be good in this neighborhood. Why would we have NYCHA staff do that on behalf of the residents? Let the tenants themselves decide what's gonna make the most sense for them. So now not only do we have a second option, but we also have the tenants in the driver's seat of which option they prefer. So right now as we speak, the election rules for the public housing trust are out for public comment um, that'll be about a 60-day public comment period and we hope that at some point in 2023 we're starting to actually have developments vote on which option they prefer and we're frankly agnostic we built two good tools that we think can renovate public housing that's two more tools than we had 10 years ago in a system that's really crumbling and now that and now it's time for the tenants to really study up and make some decisions about which model they think is best for their development I agree it was an amazing process, but only in housing production in New York and 18 months of, of, of Tuesday night meetings with pizza provided by Gail Brewer before you can even get to an RFP is quick. I'm just, I, you know, and so you're trying to bottle that and, and accelerate it here. So the trust has, a, has a authorization for 25,000 units. You have around 40,000 in RAD that's kind of in pipeline, pre-pipeline, whatever. Is there a risk that people, because it's public, want the trust and you get 25,000 units there and then suddenly people don't want RAD anymore and you need them both? We definitely need them both. And I feel very confident that the tenants are gonna have a mix of opinions. When we go out and talk to NYCHA residents, some of them are very, very solid that they would like NYCHA to continue to be their property manager. And some of them are very, very solid that they do not. So I think it's gonna be a mix. And we were, we were the le legislation for the trust caps us at 25,000 units. You know, as a, as a brand new tool, that's very reasonable. And I'm hoping that we see some success there and then we can go back for more at that point. And the last question before we open it up on NYCHA. Um, so there's a lot of distrust for good reason. Your stove doesn't work, your elevator doesn't work, there's mold, there's pests, you know, you can keep on going on. And these are real issues and we read about them every day. And um, 
as we sat in that room, people experience them every day. And it's, is the challenge resources, management capacity, accountability systems, labor flexibility? What is the challenge that's holding NYCHA back from doing that operational management well? And is this being fixed by this transformation plan? Where are we? So it's definitely all of the above. Um, the, there is substantial progress under the transformation plan in terms of the day-to-day management, but it's hard to do day-to-day management of a building that's crumbling because it's fundamentally not a property management problem. So having that influx of capital through RAD and through the trust is going to be really key to making things work. We're currently rolling out a work order reform process that gives tenants a little bit more visibility when they call and there's a problem in their apartment as to what exactly is going on and how many appointments they're going to need to get it fixed and be able to schedule that along with alongside their own schedules. But fundamentally, we want to reduce that number and make sure that those buildings are in better shape. Um, then we also, again, are seeing a lot of progress under RAD, and so we did thousands of units last year. I encourage anyone who hasn't seen one to come out to one of those buildings and see the before and after, and we want to create a similar type of momentum under the trust for those tenants for whom RAD is not their preference. And I think there's some also some new indicators in the MMR about NYCHA and, and and so we look forward to seeing those work order reforms, I guess, rolling out to Brooklyn this year, keeping on that, you know, not just because we're in this business, but transparency will only help the tenants in the long, long run because they shouldn't, you know, suffer blindly behind the wall as, as they have, you know, all too often. Transparency helps the tenants and also the tenants know that there's no, no magic wand for them. So being able to walk a tenant through what it's going to take to get to, from point A to point B in itself, I think, is very useful in the meantime. And fundamentally, we'll have to deliver on those actual repairs. So can we open up for a, a few questions? Ed Wallace from Greenberg Charg, Vice Chair of CBC. And it's wonderful to have you here. Uh, I'm going to ask a Manhattan-centric question, I think. There is panic, obviously, in the Class A office world that people aren't coming back to work. Uh, at the same time, there are a lot of Class B buildings that could be converted to housing. Footnote, you can judge me as crazy. I once asked Dan Doctoroff to put the municipal building where I once worked on the block because it would be a nice comparison to the Frank Gehry building at the other end of the bridge. It's not suited for office use. It's well suited for residential. Just make a note. <laughs> what, what is the plan? Uh, how much is your focus on switching, uh, allowing Class Bs to be converted to housing? What would it yield if you know? And what's the timetable if it's even worthwhile considering? So it's definitely worthwhile considering. I'm not going to scoop the work of the new New York panel that's working on just these kind of questions. But I do think that in every um, crisis that the city has weathered, whether that's 9-11 or the pandemic or the mortgage crisis, we kind of see over and over again how slow we are to pivot. Um, and I think making sure that we have a clean pathway, be it for a hotel conversion to residential or to something else or through office conversions, that we just need to buy ourselves a little bit more flexibility than we have right now for the market to be able to adjust to these big shocks. So, you know, I wouldn't be sitting here if I had a crystal ball about what was going to happen with the office market going forward, but I do know that we don't know the answer to that right now and that we want to hope for a quick recovery, but also give ourselves some flexibility to make sure 
sure that if it doesn't recover as quickly as we would like it to, that we're able to use those buildings for some other purpose. Um, and I'll also reflect on the fact that having done a ma some major zoning changes in lower Manhattan in the wake of 9-11, um, we saw that in the midst of the pandemic, you know, when you walk around in lower Manhattan, even in, during a very slow time, you would see people walking their dogs and, you know, just being around town because there's people who live down there. It's a 24-hour neighborhood at this point. Midtown didn't fare as well. So really creating mixed-use neighborhoods that are, will be more resilient to whatever the next emergency is, which we can't predict, we're always planning for the last emergency, I think is going to be a really important tool, both to recover from COVID and also to just make ourselves a little bit more resilient, or to make our economy a little bit more resilient in whatever, that, whatever the world throws at us next. Hi, this is Meg Broad from Rockefeller Group. Um, thank you so much for coming. It's really interesting to hear about all of your initiatives. Um, obviously, housing is a big problem here in New York. Um, but in order to you know, run your departments and, and make these initiatives occur, staffing is important, people. Um, you need people. And um, I've noticed also that, with, at, for example, at HBD, there's such a shortage of staff. And it's not for lack of trying or not you know focused or anything from the from the part of the agency but a lot of things are taking a long time and for example we're building something in brooklyn in greenpoint that's going through like an audit process at hbd it's been seven months and really no material um, um you know progress has been made so i'm just concerned about the ability to carry out um, a lot of these initiatives without proper staffing so i was just curious about your thoughts on staffing and how um, you intend to sort of break that logjam and, and how you're recruiting people and, and how we make housing production possible. Sure. Thanks. Um, so I think there's two prongs to that question. One is that we do certainly have a staffing problem. That you see across the board. I think it's a little bit exacerbated in government, but in general, I think all of us have had issues finding the right staff, and there's just been a big change in the labor market. Um, so we do need to help recruit people. I think there's um, – I think – I, I maybe have a naive optimism around that. When I, fir I first came to New York kind of sh a couple years after, I moved in 2003 to New York City. And it was this sort of, f it was this like post 9-11 surge of like the city's coming back, we got this, come do public service here. And everybody that I talked to about launching a housing career in New York City said, you got to go to government. That was like across the board. The advice from everybody was that's where the action is. That's where like the that's where like the blood's pumping, um, and so I did. Um, and there was like a real sense of camaraderie and a public service at that moment. I think there's a really a good opportunity now again, given what's going. I think people are looking for stability, and I think people are looking for some meaning. And so I'm hoping that with the kind of cosine of everybody in this room, we can get some really amazing new crop of staff who are coming in to government service. Uh, and then also, we, in lean times, we also have to figure out what, as as with the Blast Initiative and other processes, what where, what can we pair back that we can do with a, with a smaller staff than what we have right now? And how can we streamline the process while we build up the staff at the same time, not necessarily to exactly the systems that we had going before, but actually to a smoother ride, which I think this, you know, let's not let this crisis go to waste in that respect. And I'll, I'll just... You know, say from CVC's point of view, we've pointed out 
uh, and honest papers. We have 28,000 vacancies. We can fill critical vacancies, hit our peg targets, and, and, and do this with just what you're saying, which is figuring out what's prioritized and then running it well. There is a little time in the political or in the policy debate and the budget debate of like how, how could you do any savings when you have these vacancies. There's so much room to hire. You actually can at this time. Um, I'm Margot Nee, General Counsel, Link NYC. Uh, we operate the public Wi-Fi network for the city of New York. So we think a lot about digital connectivity and how important it is to have reliable, high-speed internet um, in the home in order to be able to access opportunities for work, for school, for healthcare, for so many other things. And I wanted to ask you um, specifically about um, the mayor's announcement over a month ago of his commitment to Big Apple Connect and the need to bring affordable high-speed internet to NYCHA facilities and other affordable housing facilities in New York. Um, that's sort of a substitute, of course, for the internet master plan, or rather it's an add-on to it. Um, but I wonder more generally what you think about the prospects and timeline for, for bringing high-speed internet into affordable housing, not just in new builds, but in existing buildings, um, where, of course, it's even more complicated to lay the fiber optic cable and build the infrastructure necessary to, for that. So the, you know, as we, as we all learned, internet is effectively a utility at this point, if you want to go to work or go to school or find a job or anything else. So I think we paid lip service to that before the pandemic. And then I think now that has really smacked everybody in the face pretty clearly. Um, the Big Apple Connect program is rolling out really well. The reason why it's rolling out really well is because we were working closely with the tenants to find out what they wanted and how they wanted it to work. So that's been really effective. And we're working with some of our other industry partners to figure out what it would look like to embed internet access into our affordable housing projects writ large. First of all, on behalf of the CBC, glad to have you here. Um, you have enough problems as it is. Another one which has obviously popped up are the influx of immigrants. Tell me how that's, or tell us how that's impacted your thinking and how do you prioritize it? Sure, so, you know, the, what's unique in New York City is our right to shelter. So we have a bit of a different dynamic here than other cities who are incorporating immigrants. Um, we had more than 20,000 asylum seekers come up from the southern border, some who wanted to be in New York City and some who did not want to be in New York City. Um, and so we are, we are seeing a slowdown recently. So we, we've, we've seen that come to fruition. Um, but there's a very difficult pathway for those families right now. We really need the partnership of the federal government to make sure that those families are able to get work authorizations because without that, it's gonna be very difficult for them to you know, see, the, see the promise of what they came here for and it's gonna be very difficult for them to find housing. So that is really a critical problem that we need, we need federal partnership on. Yeah, I, uh, as I said, NYU Furman Center, uh, Jessica, we've worked together a lot here. Um, I'm really pleased to hear that you're talking about not just how we need a lot more new affordable housing, but we need more housing in general. And then you also talked about J51, which is really about preserving the affordability of what is a significant part, preserving the quality of what's a significant part of our affordable housing. So uh, th that's there's probably nothing more important in uh, HTPS. Uh, <coughs> anyway, uh, housing finance, um, the rent stabilization reform really changed the dynamics for that part of the uh, 
industry here, and I assume that's part of what you're thinking about with uh, J51. I'm wondering, um, a lot of people were kind of astonished by reading some of the latest numbers here about how many units are vacant and are the landlords these awful people who are trying to hold uh, uh, units off the market and a lot of confusion between what the state has put out or what their letter to rent guidelines board and everything. Uh, can you shed some light on that? Uh, it seems to me that um, there's been a, a lot of misunderstanding about whether there is a huge uh, effort here to hold, hold units off the market. And I, it seems to me that's going to be an important part of the discussion in Albany as to what, what the next steps are. So what can you do to uh, help us here? Sure. So uh, yeah, I do think that there's a misunderstanding on the numbers. There are units that are vacant through the normal course of business of units becoming available and being re-rented. So at any given moment in time, there's a certain number of vacant units. That's not, that doesn't represent warehousing or landlords holding units off the market. It just represents the normal course of business. New Yorkers move a lot. Um, and then there are units that are held offline and that are not available for rent, such as, you know, you're at your house in the Hamptons, you're about to start construction, um, and you're, or you're holding it offline for some other reason. Um, and then there probably are a core number of units that is much, much smaller than what was incorrectly reported of landlords who are struggling to, to, do, a, um, to do a turnover that it's gonna cost more than what's possible under the current rents. And so we really need to figure out a system for those, but it is a much, much smaller part of the universe than I think has been recently reported. Thank you. Hi, Natasha Lifton with Trinity Church Wall Street. Um, this is a follow-up to the first question. You referenced the hotel conversion bill, which is a terrific um, accomplishment, but it seems like the actual conversions, those deals, it's, it seems like there's a lot uh, that needs to be, there seem, seem to be some barriers there. So I was just wondering if you could talk about what you think the barriers are and, and what the solutions are. Um, I mean, I think that the first the first version of the bill included the money that we needed to do hotel conversions, but not the regulatory reforms. Um, the second version of the bill did include the regulatory reforms, and that was just enacted over the summer. So now we're able to go and try to find the pipeline to be able to fill the, you know, to be able to spend that Honda money, and also to be able to find those hotels. Just as that happened, we we had 20,000 people come to New York City, so that kind of that disrupted our, that, that, that changed the dynamic in terms of available hotels that were on the market. Um, as that process slows down, I would expect to see some changes. Um, and again, just as we talked about for offices, we really need to get ourselves the flexibility to move more nimbly as the market changes. And we'll see, I think, more market changes in the future. Um, and we'll, um, it's very hard to predict where that will happen. So if the, if the tourism market bounces back quicker than we had hoped, the quicker than we had feared it would, that will be a good problem to have in a way. I'm still happy that we have that flexibility and there'll still be um, a good pipeline of hotels that are no longer feasible for hotel use that we're going to want to convert to housing, as we've always done. Most of my career was in supportive housing, and we have all these marquee projects that are in these amazing locations that were hotel conversions, and so this would be the next generation of that. Okay, we'll do one more short one with Steve Berger. Different, different approach. If, if, if you are successful, the city's going to become a have massive buying power. What is the city going to do using that buying power to reduce the costs of construction and in, in New York City. 
When you have great buying power, you ought to be able to attack some of that infrastructure. And I also I don't have time to ask you, don't you think Local 97 is going to be massively disruptive to the real estate industry? <laughs> <laughs> I said shorts, do you? The first one is my real question. Um, so the cost of construction is going to be an incredible headwind, to say the least, over the next several years. Um, there are maybe some signs that that's slowing down, and we'll hope for that. Um, and that is made worse the more um, the more nuance we add to every single regulation. So that's why the blast process is so important. That's why the zoning changes are going to be so important that it can try to mitigate some of those impacts. It's very it's difficult for the city to be you know the prices of um, commodities are hard for the city of New York to control. Uh, but what we can control is what it takes to do business here in New York City. And if we can try to streamline that as much as possible, we can help offset some of the chaos in the market right now. And what I didn't get to is mentioning in the plan, you talked about the cost of insurance. So I'm looking for scaffold law on that agenda as well in Albany. Plenty more to talk about. I'm up we can't on the get train to it with all. me. I'll meet you on the train. I am there anytime, anytime we can help. Thank you so much for, um, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.